Any of y'all feel bad for laughing at that kid getting hit in the head? Man, y'all are cold-blooded. There's two quotes in there that I, I, I want you to remember. When you think about this series, when you think about whatever you've learned from this series, when you go through seasons of pain and suffering loss, I, I want you to think of those two quotes. One is where he says, it's supposed to be hard. That's what makes it great. You're going to go through hard times in your life. You're going to go through difficult times in your life. When you go through pain and suffering and loss, it's going to be hard and difficult. But I want you to have this sense where you realize it's in those hard times that God does something great in your life. That's what makes it great. The other thing is, is when you have that voice inside your head that's calling you names and telling you that you're a loser and you're going to lose because you always lose and you're going to lose again, you're going to lose, you're going to lose. I want you to have something within you from the Holy Spirit or from Tom Hanks, whatever, that just has this sense of, we're going to win. Just, I, I just love that sort of guttural cry where he just sort of forces it through and he's like, mm-mm. I don't care what the circumstance is. I don't care what the environment is. I don't care what this little pestering kid's going to say. We're going to win. That's it. We're going to win. And I felt like I needed to sort of end this series of Beauty for Ashes uh, with sort of an understanding of what God does in the midst of that. So you would walk away from this series with those two thoughts in your head, uh, that the heart is what makes it great, and we're going to win. I've read the book. I, I know how this all ends. I know how this all plays out in the end. We win. I don't know how it's all going to pan out. I don't know pre, post, millennial dispensation, all that kind of stuff. I just know we win. That's all I know. Uh, if you have a loving relationship with God that will last for all eternity, it doesn't matter when eternity begins, you win. And in the series, we've, so far we've talked about uh, why bad things happen in your life. Sometimes you know, you know the reason, sometimes you don't know the reason, but how do we deal with it? We've talked about how uh, pain, suffering, and loss are just common experiences that we all go through. Uh, we talked about how we make sense of it, how we respond to it. Uh, last week, we sort of talked about uh, what do you do when you're mad at God and frustrated with it and moving through that process of how the lament helps you sort of express your feelings of anger and frustration to God so you can move maybe towards praise to God? But this morning, I just kind of want to hone in on those two thoughts and how do you get to that place of it's going to be great and we're going to win. And that's a hard place to get because if you've gone through pain, suffering, and loss, uh, by the way, if you haven't yet, I just sort of want to come over and like pat you on the head and go, that's cute. That's really cute. Like if you have anybody who goes, you know, I'm really looking forward to the next series because I didn't get anything out of this one. I, I, this isn't kind of something I've ever had to deal with. You just kind of want to go, aww. Come back in a couple of years. I, you'll come back to this one, trust me. Because when you're there, you know what this is. Some people call it the dark night of the soul. Some people call it the bottomless pit. You'll get to this place that's so dark that you can't see any way out of this. You can't see how, ever, how God could ever do something good out of this. You can't possibly imagine how this is going to be great. You can't possibly say with any sense of honesty in your soul, we're going to win. Because it feels like it's over. It feels like as if what's been broken cannot be fixed. Uh, you've had those moments where you, you've, you've broken something porcelain, something glass, and it shattered on the ground, and your first thought is, I'm going to go get some superglue before mom gets home, before the wife gets home, before dad gets home, whatever it might be. And so you sit there with a superglue, and you start working at it. And if you were here a couple months back, Pastor Chris did a, did a message where the, where the Brady Bunch kids tried this with the vase on the table. At some point with a superglue, you realize this isn't going to work. This isn't going to fool anybody, and it's nowhere near like it was. And what's really painful is when you look at your life, and that's what you realize in your life. 
And, and there's this sense that this darkness just sweeps over you when you have this sort of sense that I can't get back what's lost, and this is my life now. This is it. This is who I am. This is my life now. I, I am a cliche country song is what I am. That's my life. That's my life story. You know, right? you know the country song, like you lose your dog, you lose your house, you lose your wife, you, you lose your money, you lose it all, right? And you're just left with nothing but beer. And you feel like, yep, that's, that's pretty much my life right now. And, and there's, there's a painful sense that comes over when you have this realization that there's a label that's sort of stuck on you that you can't shake. I, I'm now a widower. I'm now divorced. I, I'm childless. Bankruptcy. I, I'm bankrupt. I'm a felon. And you, you think about these labels that get stuck on you. I'm damaged goods. I'm broken. I'm crippled. And you think about this, and there's just sense that comes over you in the darkness that says, this is it. This is my life. And it will never change. It will never be any better. And it's really hard to ever, when you're in that place, ever have this sense of, how can anything ever be great again? How could you even look at me and say, we're going to win? Maybe you will. I won't. At least not this side of eternity. Because there's nothing going in that direction. Now, if you've been at that place... It's why you need to read everything in the Bible, because there's stuff you'll overlook in the Bible that you'll just miss. There's actually a book of the Bible that was written just to you if you've ever been in that place. It's the book of Joel. I know, you never read it. Uh, most of us haven't. It's just one little, it's three chapters. It's not that it took too long to get through. It just seemed insignificant, so you didn't bother to read it. It's an interesting book, because we don't really know when it was written. We don't know the exact context of it. It's most likely written during the exile. Now, I'm sure I just lost all of you there because when I was going to church back in the day, whenever the pastor would start talking about the history of the Israelites, I'd be like, whatever. Uh, but to kind of bring you up to speed, uh, just sort of the history of the Bible, you've got Genesis, that's where we're created, and then after that, shortly after that, you've got Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that sort of takes up the book of Genesis, and then Moses comes on the scene in Exodus, and the people are enslaved in Egypt, and then he says, let my people go, they come out of Egypt, they split the Red Sea, that's where that story happens, they walk through it, just like with Charles and Heston, they walk through it, they move into the promised land, uh, while they're in the promised land, they, they fight the battles in there with Joshua, eventually they establish themselves in the promised land, they establish themselves some kings, they have like King David, that's where you get him, and then Solomon, the really wealthy guy, and then a bunch of really bad kings. And then after a long time of really bad kings, God finally says, that's it, I'm kicking you out of the promised land. And so that's where they get taken off into exile. And we think that's when this is written, is during that time. This, and when they kicked off into exile, that's where Jeremiah writes, listen, I know things are bad, but I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, bring you good hope. I'm going to bring you back here someday. It's going to be 70 years of a time out, but someday I'll bring you back. We think this was written in that exile period before they get to come back in. And eventually they get to come back in the land, reestablish the temple and whatnot. And what Joel's trying to do, he's trying to help them understand why they're in the situation they're in and kind of understand where to go now, what to do now. And so he starts off in chapter one and he says, yeah, God judged you. In the same way that he sent locusts into Egypt in part of the 10 plagues, he essentially did the same thing to us. And the locusts, instead of it being bugs that came in and ate everything like it was with the ten plagues of Egypt, uh, the locust of God in this sense was God's army coming in. He, he brought an army to come in to just utterly devastate and destroy things. So in chapter 1, like five, verse 5 or 6, he says, uh, just like when the locust comes in, whatever the locusts don't eat of your crops, the locust offspring eats. And whatever their offspring doesn't eat, their offspring eats to the point where there's absolutely nothing left. So he says, don't think this just can happen to people who don't have a relationship with God. No, people like us who have a relationship with God, when we do bad things, when we mess up, God punishes us just like he does everybody else. And that's exactly what's happened to us. That's why we're here. So that's chapter one. 
when he gets to chapter two, is where he moves to this place of, okay, well, what now? What do we do now? And you get down into verse 12, and he says this. He says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts, uh, not your outer garments. Now, what he's saying is when you get to this place, sometimes you think to yourself, well, what's the point now? Why even try to reestablish a relationship with God? He's not going to take me back. I think I've blown it too far. You ever got to the point where you feel like you've sinned too much, where God's like, eh. I've had people who, who I've invited to church, and they say, I don't think I can go anymore. I'm like, why? And they start telling me the list of their sins or their stories. I remember talking to a prostitute in Florida uh, who was a crack addict, and she looked at me and she said, church just isn't a, isn't a place for somebody like me. It's like, no, it's exactly the place for somebody like you. Actually, it should be full of you and all of your friends. That's, that's, that's who Jesus Christ created the church for, was for someone just like you. And that's what Joel's trying to say. He's like, even now. There's never a point where, where there's not an even now in your life. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become. Where Paul would say it this way, where your sin increases, God's grace increases all the more. And you sin some more and God just sends you more grace. You can never out the grace of God. So he says, even now declares the Lord, just return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. And you're like, I don't get this, rend my hearts, not my garments, what do you mean? In that day, what they would do, whenever they would want to repent, they would rip their outer garment. It was sort of like this, and sometimes they would even put dirt on their heads. And so he's sort of re- referencing this thing where you'd rip your garment and put dirt, dust, and ashes on your head. And the idea was to sort of outwardly symbolize what's going on internally. That inside, I'm torn apart over what I've done. Inside, I'm a mess. Like, how do you apologize? Like, do you get down on your knees and grovel? Is there some outward expression that you do when you're trying to apologize and let somebody know you're really sincere, that you really mean it this time, uh, that you're really heartfelt? I don't know what you do. Maybe you bring flowers. Maybe you write a card. Uh, you do, oftentimes, we'll do something to sort of physically display kind of where we're at. Uh, some of you, I'd say, well, just hit me. Just punch me. I, I feel like I, I need to be hit right now. That's kind of what they would do. They, they would rip their outer garments. And what he's saying is, this, you can almost see how this has sort of become like going through the motions for them. You ever had that? You had somebody who, who's apologized so many times, it's almost like they're doing it from memory, not from sincerity. Oh yeah, this is where you buy me the flowers and you buy me the cards and you get the chocolates and you offer to take me out to dinner because you're just so sorry. You ever had that moment where you're like, you know what I want? You know what I really want? I don't want the flowers, I want the chocolates. I want you to actually be sorry for a change. I want you to actually get to the point where, where you're broken over what's happened, where there's weeping over it. I want you to get to the point where you want this relationship to be right more than you want your next meal. And from the looks of all of us, including myself, we could skip a few, right? Just confess in here. Not talking to you, talking to myself here. All right. Some of y'all took that personal. Um, <laughs> fasting, weeping, mourning, where you get to the point where you want a loving relationship with God more than anything else. Where if you had to do over again, you wouldn't do it the same way again. You would go back and you do things differently. That's what God wants. He doesn't want the outward show. He doesn't want, it's sort of like the politician who shows up at church right before the election. Oh, you look really religious. Oh, I don't want that. Some of you, you only come to church when you've blown it real bad, right? Some of you are here right now because you messed up sometime in the past month, and so your penance is to come to church with the missus or the mister uh, just so you can sort of get back in the good races, show that you're going to walk straight and narrow. I don't want you going to church. I want you to actually be sorry, is what he's saying. What God really wants is for you to get back into a right relationship with him. He wants that more than anything else. And then he goes on and he says, Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He, he relents from sending calamity. Now, 
This is where we know that Joel is writing this a little bit later in history because he's, this is a quote from many other places in the Old Testament. It's a very famous passage in the Old Testament. We first see it over in Exodus chapter 34. Uh, the setting there is that we just went through our Israel history here. Uh, they, were, they were in Egypt, and Moses leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And when they get through the Red Sea, Moses is like, all right, God's plan for us. We're going to the promised land. And so they send us some people out to go check out and see what it is. And those people come back, and they say two things. It's amazing. It's everything God said it was. But there's one problem. There is no way, not even with God's help, we could ever go in there and take the place. The people are too big. They're too strong. The battle's too great for us. Not even with God's help could we ever pull this off. And you can just imagine, God's like, mm, you just said I can't. Don't you, don't you, do, you, do you sometimes get frustrated when somebody says you can't do this? How frustrating do you think it is for God when, when you tell him he can't do it? How frustrating do you think it is for God that after he has, I mean, how many miracles do you want? The ten plagues of Egypt, I pull you out of Egypt, I split the Red Sea. I cause a natural phenomenon and then a disaster to happen in your favor at the perfect timing for you. Can you not possibly yet see there's nothing I can't do, right? And now you're telling me I can't do this? It says God was a little angry with the people. And he was ready in that moment, just you could see God's frustration, just wanting to wipe them out. But Moses comes back down and says, you know, God's pretty angry right now, but here's his character. He's compassionate and gracious, and he is slow to anger and abounding in love. So he's not going to wipe you all out. You're never going to see the promised land because you don't think you can do it, so he's going to let the next generation do it. And that was his grace over them not to wipe them out that day. And then you fast forward a little bit over to the book of Numbers and you see the same phrase come back up again. And where are they? Well, Moses is up on the hill talking with God. God chisels out the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down from the hill with the Ten Commandments in hand, and what does he find? He's finally taken all the gold and they've melted it down into a golden calf and they said, here is our God, we're going to worship the cow. That's where we get our food from. That's where we get our clothes from. It provides leather. How can you not worship this thing? It must be God. And Moses gets frustrated, and he throws the stone tablets down. They break, and he goes back up on the hill, and he and God are both pretty mad. And, and then Moses has to then chisel out the stone tablets himself the second time around, and he comes back down. And he says, all right, God's not going to wipe you out. You know why? Because he is compassionate and gracious, and he is slow to anger and abounding in love, that even after all he's done for you, you've cheated on him but he still loves you, and he's still going to take you back. And then you see the psalmist write about this. David in the Psalms writes about this in Psalm 86. There's another great psalm on forgiveness and God's restoration in Psalm 103. Ever want to like see what forgiveness really looks like? There's a beautiful poem about it in Psalm 103 and talks about how God is gracious uh, and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But my favorite place where this comes up is in the book of Jonah. See, in the book of Jonah, there was this group, there's these people who lived in the city of Nineveh who were mean and awful towards Jonah's people. And so God's like, that's it, I'm going to judge him. And Jonah says, far be it from me to stand in your way for that, God. And God's like, no, that's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to go there and warn them so maybe they will change, they'll repent, and they'll do something different so I won't have to. And he's like, why on earth would I want to do that? Why ruin a good plan? Let's just go with plan one and let you do it. And so when God says, no, go there, and he says, no, I'm going to go this way. This is where some of you all know this story. Jonah gets captured up by a great fish, and he gets spit out on the land, and he ends up there close to Nineveh, and he goes into the city, and he preaches the worst sermon ever. He just says, hey, listen, man, God's going to judge you all. If you all don't repent, good luck with that, and he leaves. There's no humor. There's no movie clips. There's no illustrations. There's no free coffee and donuts. It's just pretty much turn or burn, baby. And then what does he do? He goes up on the hill, satisfied that he's preached poorly enough that 
ain't nothing going to stop it now. Let's watch the fireworks. Let's see if God throws down the burning sulfur from heaven. I don't care if it's a volcano, what he does, hail, whatever. Take this baby out. And when that doesn't happen, Jonah gets frustrated and mad because the people have begun to repent. And you know what Jonah turns to God and says? This is why I didn't want to come here in the first place. Because I knew you. And I knew that you were compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And so Joel brings this back up and he says, listen, even now, even now in the midst of everything that you have done to really make God frustrated and he is, you are fully deserving of everything that's happened to you, never forget God's heart and his character that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And even now in the midst of everything you've done, he'll still forgive you. It, it's sort of like you wrecked, just say, just say like you, you, you borrowed dad's car without asking and you plowed it into a tree and you call, maybe like you call Pastor Micah, and you're like, oh, I hope, and I'm not prophesying anything here. And you call up Pastor Micah, and you say, I don't know what to do. I stole my dad's car. I didn't ask him for it. I just plowed it into a tree. What do I do? And just picture him coming back, talking about you, his dad, you know, the, the kid's dad, the youth's dad, and he says, listen, man, I know your dad. He drops you off every week at youth group. I've had a lot of conversations out in the parking lot. He's a good guy. He is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. You just need to go back, and you need to tell him what you've done. You need to repent for it. You need to really be sorry for what you've done, understand why you did it. And trust me, God, he's going to forgive you. Your dad will forgive you. I know him. He will. And who knows? He might even just buy you a new car. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when the youth pastor gives advice, right? Except for if you've read the book of Joel, you'd see he might give that advice because he knows his Bible well. Because Joel says this, he says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sin and command, uh, calamity. And who knows? He may relent and leave you a blessing. Oh, who's funny now? You get that? He says he might relent. Not only might he forgive you for, for smashing up the car, maybe when he takes it to the dealer to get it fixed, he might just pick you out a car. He might say, you know, I realize you did that. You did something wrong that you shouldn't have done, but you know, you really need a car. I'm going to go out and buy you a brand new car so you don't ever have to steal mine ever again. How about that? Some of you are looking at your kids right now going, he talking about God, not me. <laughs> don't ever confuse the graciousness of your heavenly father with the sinfulness of your dad, all right? It's just, there's a line. There is grace, and there is amazing grace. You can sing about my grace, but you will only sing about my grace, not my amazing grace. So Joel kind of throws it out there. He's like, who knows? God might even bless you. Really? I, I mean, that's hard to, now, I have always read this passage in a different context. I, didn't, never, I, I had heard this passage, it was read to me when I went through a difficult time, and I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking forward to the final chapter of Job, where God repays me, repays me for the years that the locusts have eaten. I'm looking forward to that time where God restores. Now, I talk about the last chapter of Job. Last chapter of Job makes sense, right? If you don't know the story of Job, what happens is Job's a good guy. He's a poster child for when bad things happen to good people. He's kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's the right guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. He sort of gets caught up in this cosmic debate between God and Satan somewhere up in the heavenlies where Satan comes in, the liar that he is. He says, you know, God, nobody really loves you. Nobody cares about you. Uh, all of humanity, their only relationship with you is because you buy them off with good stuff. And God says, well, what about Job? He loves me. We have a right relationship. He has a loving relationship with me that's going to last for all eternity. And, Job, and Satan says, no, he doesn't. 
He only serves you because you've given everything good to him. You let me take all that stuff away from him and you watch what happens. And God says, all right, go for it. And you watch what happens. I know my boy Job and he's never gonna leave me. And sure enough, Satan's allowed to come in and take away his health, take away his livelihood, take away his wealth, take away his job, uh, take away his reputation, take away his family, his kids are wiped out. He loses everything, right? And you're walking through it, and Job never knows why. We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Job, Job never knows why. But he stays faithful to God through the whole time, and he maintains his relationship. He, he offers up several laments uh, and frustrations and anger toward God and frustration toward God, but he never, he never, never t- walks away from God. And you get to chapter 42, and although theologically, I would never say God owes any of us anything, right? I mean, God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. Even, even if he's taken something away from me, he, I'm not owed or deserved anything, right? Can we all agree on that? When Job gets fully restored, right? When, when he has a new family now, and he pounds his wealth back, and he, you know, he's twice as prosperous as he was before. Whatever he had before is almost doubled or tripled now here at the end of the... There's a piece of you that says, this is right, this is good. You know, there's something about this that seems just, Right? Like, don't you love it when somebody's gone, fallen on hard luck and you hear that story about where everybody's come together and they give the kids all the scholarship to college and you're like, you know, that's a good thing. I'm glad that happened. That ought to happen to that person. This was a no fault of their own. And I love it when there's sort of this sense of design or divine cosmic sort of rightness to the world where somebody who's been kind of messed over uh, is blessed in the end. And you, you're in the book of Job and you're like, I can't wait for God to do that kind of stuff to me for the stuff I've lost. You know, for, for the areas where I've been victim of somebody else's sin or areas where the, the overall fallenness of humanity has resulted in my loss, whether it be natural disasters or through disease or suffering or death or dying, whatever it may be, I've, I've, I've experienced pain and suffering and loss, not because of my own sin, but because of other people's sin, just like where Job was at. I've had that experience, and I just long for the time where God brings me back to the place where he does with Job in chapter 42. Joel's not talking about that, though. That's not the context for Joel. He's talking about the kid who crashed the car. He's talking about that other type of pain and suffering and loss. He talks about all the wasted lost years. Got any lost years yet? Somewhere between age 50 and 75, you'll look back over your life and you'll have this sense of the wasted years. Some of you, you realize that much earlier in life. Those wasted years, whether it be by you know, selfishness or greed, you made bad business decisions, you invested in things you shouldn't have, and you, you made impulsive decisions, and so you wasted a lot of years of your life, and you burned up a lot of your money along the way because you made really poor financial decisions, and you look back and say, oh, if I had only put that money into retirement savings, all of the wasted years of all the things that I bought that I shouldn't have bought along the way or invested that I shouldn't have invested, if only I had just been saving back when I was 18. If I would started saving for retirement when I was 18, I could have been done with it by the time I was age 25 or 30, and I'd have a million dollars in the bank. Oh, the wasted years. You ever made take Dave Ramsey? and thought about the wasted years of your retirement savings? Yeah. Oh, the wasted years. For some of you, your wasted years have to do with your family and relationships, and because you spent your time on games and gadgets and, and, and other things like that, what's ended up happening is that you've, you've prioritized those things over your family, over your relationships, over your friends, and you sort of look back and you realize you can't get those precious years back, and that game you thought was so important to watch means you lost out on the opportunity to go out and play catch with your son. And those gadgets that you just had to have and you focused on and was just you couldn't just take your eye off of, all the conversations you missed out on around the dinner table because you were buried in that thing and you look back on all of the wasted years with regret. All of us move through this time where we have these wasted years. 
Some of you, it's your rebellious years, and you made a lot of really dumb decisions and poor decisions that have taken a toll on your body and your health and your relationships because you were rebelling against either your parents or, or against God or against the man or against your job or whatever, the system, whatever it might be, and you're rebelling against that, and so you made a lot of really bad health decisions and relational decisions along the way, and you look back and you say, I can't get those years back. I'd also put into this category all of the godless years, all the years you spent in your life apart from God, mad at God, estranged from God, all of your years before you begin a relationship with God. There's not a single person I know who doesn't get into their life and looks back over it and says, oh, I wish I'd begun a better relationship with God sooner. Oh, I wish I'd given my life sooner. Every one of us at some point is going to have that moment that, that Schindler has at the end of Schindler's List, you know, where he looks at his car and he thinks to himself, oh, you know, if, if I hadn't spent all the money on this car, I could have saved 10 more people's lives. Oh, this gold ring, if I didn't have this gold ring and I didn't feel like I needed to have this, I could have saved two people with this gold ring. All of us at some point will look back over our life and say, oh, the things I could have done for God. If only I prioritized him over myself along the way. And there's this sense when you look back over those wasted years and those lost years, there's a sense where you look at it and you say, you know, that's my own doing. I can't possibly expect God to do for me like what he did for Job because all this is my own doing, Right? But what Joel is saying is he's saying, let me just read it to you. Up until now, by the way, it's also been Joel speaking. Joel's been like, hey, who knows? Like Pastor Micah coming to one of the youth. Who knows, you know? I know your dad well enough. He's going to forgive you. He might even buy you a new car, man. Who knows? Let's look on the bright side here, right? When you get down to verse 25, it's God speaking. And here's what God says. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten for the armies that I've sent against you. Did you get that? God just said, I'm buying you the new car. I'm going to make up for all of that lost time. I can bless you more in the next five years than all that you've lost out on in the past 50. And this is where our mind kind of breaks down. And you say, there's, there's no way you can do this. Uh, we cannot possibly comprehend how God could possibly do this, right? You ever had that moment where you tried to fix the thing that was broken with the superglue, and you get to the point where you realize it just can't be fixed? And so you got to go fess up, and you bring it in to dad or mom or whatever it is, and you say, hey, I broke this. Can you help me fix it? I don't, I don't know if I, I, can't, I can't fix it. And they say this. They say, ah, don't worry about it. We'll just get you a new one. See, until that moment, all you were thinking about was fixing what was broken, Right? Fix what was broken, super glue, right? If only I had more skills, a steadier hand, better glue, better holding power, something, you know, could just kind of, you know, buff this out, refinish it. And then they go, oh, no, we'll just get a new one. See, that's something you hadn't even thought about or comprehended. Now, it goes even beyond this. I remember at my first church down in Florida, uh, we were trying to fix some stuff in the sound booth that was wrong, and we had this guy in our church, he was about 84, right? This old, old guy. Sorry, I just may have missed, sorry. But quite young at heart. Um, <laughs> this guy was so old that he used to teach computers back when it involved vacuum tubes. Most of you have no idea. I heard one, I heard one person laugh. That's because only one person understands it. It has anything to do with anything. He's that old, right? We were trying to fix this motorized projector that had been in the church since like the early 80s. And there was a part that was missing in it that was broken. And we're looking at it. I'm like, I have no idea. We're going to have to get a new one because there's nobody's going to, I mean, Radio Shack doesn't even carry this stuff. And he goes, I got probably four or five of those in my garage. I'm sure one of them will fit. 
an honest story. The dude walked back in with four or five of them. Not only, not only did he have it, he had it organized, right? I got a lot of stuff in my garage. Oh, I think I got something for that. I have no idea where it's at. The guy brings it in, right? So about a year later, we're, we're in the sound booth, and there's, the, there's something called a plate reverb that was broken, all right? Now, if you don't know what a, what a plate reverb is, it's what makes the singers on stage sound really good. Newsflash. Hey, I'm going to speak truth. I know I can't sing, and a plate review reverb is not even going to help me, okay? I'm just going to say it right now. However, it can take a rusty voice and make it sound pretty, right? It can make an okay voice sound amazing, and it can make a good voice sound out of this world good, right? That's what a reverb can do, right? So, the way that they used to make reverbs back in the day is it actually was a plate that would vibrate. And so you would take the voice waves and it would go through the, through the plate reverb. Now just be really quiet for a second. Ah! Hear a little bit of echo in this room? Because we have these high ceilings, right? Now picture back in the old cathedral. You ever heard like you know, the old Byzantine, um, Gregorian type chants that would just kind of echo and ring and it sounds beautiful? Part of that's the acoustics of the room. So what plate reverb would do is that you would actually take the person's vocal signals and you'd throw it across this plate, and as the plate vibrated, it added that sort of ambiance and depth and richness to the sound of their voice. It made it sound really good. So this thing had broke, and good old Glenn, he walks in, and he's like, I'm sure I can fix that. He tries and tries and tries. He doesn't seem to have a part for that in his garage, and he can't fix it. So I'm thinking to myself, thank God you can't fix it, because I desperately want to go into the digital age and get something new anyway. So we bought this new digital reverb machine. Now, this reverb that we had weighed about 80 pounds. It's solid metal. The casing of it, everything, extremely heavy. And it has one reverb setting to it at all, and it can be used for one mic channel. We got a digital one, which did something like 465 different kinds of reverbs, just like the one we have back here, right? And you can use it on all the voices. You can use it on the instruments. You can do whatever you want. It can do all of them simultaneously. You can pile them on top of each other. And I'm trying to explain to him how this device, which, lays, which weighs less than two pounds, does what this 84-pound reverb does, only it's the equivalent of like 460 of them, okay? All at the same time. And I'm trying to explain this to him. And in his mind, he's just thinking mechanically. He's not thinking digital. And I'll never forget the moment it clicks with him. And he goes, so funny, he goes. It like, it like hit him. A little like, you can almost like see a light bulb pop up on top of his head, right? And he goes, oh, wow. See, until that moment, as much as he could see was fixing a plate reverb that was broken. That's all he could see. And if I can fix this, one of those mic channels will sound good on a Sunday. He had no comprehension of the digital age. No comprehension of 465 channels all working simultaneously on top of each other with every single mic channel flowing through this to create something amazing and beautiful regardless of what kind of input you're putting into it. This is all the funnier because I forgot to turn my mic on last service and they were all riding me in between. Um, it blew his mind. He could not possibly fathom it could even be done. And what happens to us in the midst of our pain and suffering, loss, and our brokenness that we've caused at our own accord, we can't possibly comprehend how God could ever do something great or amazing. There's not enough super glue to fix this, God. I don't think you got the parts to fix my plate reverb. And God says, I don't care about the 80-pound thing that only does one function. I'm moving you into a different age, a digital age, which can do something far more beyond anything you could ever ask or imagine. 
One day I'm going to do that for sure. Once you get into heaven, no eyes ever seen, no ears ever heard, no mind can possibly conceive what it is I've got prepared for you there. You can't possibly imagine, and you can't possibly imagine what I can do in your life right now. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And then he goes on, he says, you're going to have this day where you will eat plenty and you'll eat to your full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Wonders don't happen outside of something hard. The Red Sea doesn't part unless it needs to. It was a wonder of God, but it was a really hard situation. The bouncy ball only bounces on a hard surface. You put it on something soft, it doesn't do anything. For you to see the wonders of God, it has to be hard. The hard is what makes us see God is great. Without the hard, you can't see the greatness of God. Without Paul having the thorn in the side, he says, I would never know the sufficiency of God far past any of my uh, abilities or actions. And it is when I'm weak that I begin to see just how strong and how great and how mighty and how miraculous God really is. He's worked wonders, he says, and so my people will never again be ashamed. All of the shame wrapped up in that label that you feel, this is my life. If you will trust your life to God and come over to him, do I need to read the scripture verses out of Revelation 21 that says, behold, I'm making all things new. And that doesn't mean fixing what was broken. It means moving from a plate to a digital age, to a thing that you can't even possibly comprehend. It is not just a new product. It is a whole new product category. And that's why you can't possibly comprehend what God can do. You laugh at the idea of a grace that would buy you a new car after you wrecked it which is why you can't possibly comprehend what God can do in your life, which is why you think that thing that is that moniker over you, that label on you, is stuck to you for life, and you can't possibly comprehend what God is going to do with you. In the Old Testament, he looks at Isaiah, and he says, hey, tell the people this. Don't dwell on the former things. Behold, I'm doing a new thing, Isaiah 43. Even right now, I'm trying to work it out in your life. I'm starting it right now. Can you not perceive it? Will you just embrace it? Over in the New Testament, our, our, our salvation is described as, it says over in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anybody is in Christ, if anybody has a loving relationship, they'll last for all eternity. The old is gone. The new has come. They are a new creation. It is totally new. It is completely different. It is not a fix. It is not a put that back together. It was not a duct tape. It was no super glue. It is new in form and function and value and completely different. We are moving into a whole different category here. There will be a day and a time because God says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And there will be a day where you see my wonders. There will be a day where you look back over your life with all the good and all the bad, all the pain, hurt, and suffering, and loss, and you'll just say this about your life. You know? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. But what about, what about, what about, I don't know. I, I just tell you, God's blessed me. I just have this overwhelming sense of God's blessing in my life. And I can't tell you how I ended up where I'm at right now or how God is using me the way that he is, but I guess I just fit right in line with every other biblical character who's got a messed up, shameful past except for Jesus Christ. And it's because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross that he takes every messed up, broken person, he makes them new, and he uses them for something they couldn't possibly imagine. And I look back over my life, and he's done it in my life too. And he's restored and repaid and rebuilt all of the years that my own sinful actions and decisions have taken away and broken. And I just can't tell you just how incredibly and overwhelmingly blessed I feel. My hope is that you will trust in God, not just to restore Job, 
but to restore the people that Joel's talking about as well, which is you and me. Let's pray. Father, for those who right now can only see what is hard and dark and broken, may they trust, Father, that this is the exact context for them to see your wonders. That one day their life will be a testimony of your greatness and your restoration. Father, for those voices that continue to come in and label us a loser, may we just have your Holy Spirit just speak through us. The words just come out of our mouth. It just simply says, we are going to win. Father, may we trust you, Father, not only with forgiveness and all of the grace that it takes for that forgiveness, but for the amazing grace that brings a blessing with the forgiveness. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.